Linda Clark. Thanks for joining me. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. That's good. I'm uh, I'm super excited about today's discussion. Um, hope you are. I don't know. It, it's uh, you don't know where we're going to go, and I don't know where we're going to go. But we'll see if we have some fun, right? We'll be right. I'm yeah. sure we'll be okay. We'll do okay. We'll yeah. Be okay. So if you don't know Belinda Clark, um, and you're listening to this, uh, the quick snapshot I'm going to provide is, you know. 11 years as the national cricket captain of um, the Australian women's team, which is amazing in itself. Um, two World Cups, first woman to ever score 200 runs. And that's what you're known for in the public eye. But there's also this other side to you, uh, Belinda, that I think we can learn about in terms of your leadership, your role in business and uh, sporting organisations. And there's a whole lot more we can talk about, right? But um yeah, Belinda, I might maybe um, we can start with just a bit of context. You're you're a sporting person at heart. Um, can you tell us a bit about you know how how you sort of see your life um, these days relative to sport? Uh, still very heavily involved. So uh, I think as I've played and then worked in administration and then sort of left the organisation and doing my own thing now, the one thing that's consistent across all those three phases is sport. And at times I was trying to run away from it to say, I think I'm done with sport. I need to do something (laughs) different, but I keep getting sort of drawn back in. So I've now come to accept that that's just how it is. And uh, sport's a really important part of um, life for me. And I I find that it's also, uh, it should be an important part of life for kids and for um, for adults, and I just see it as a really nice place for for people to be physically active, but also to be connecting with each other. So there's some, you know, benefits well beyond sort of the high performance end of the sport that um, people watch on television. Yeah, I love it. I um, I love my sport, and uh, I know you know years ago I I was you know, possibly on the far edge of perhaps being a little bit too ambitious and competitive. But um, these days, you know, my my kids are involved, and I and I love it. And I think today what I'd like to to unpack is just those phases, right? Of, of all those things you just mentioned in literally about 30 seconds of how you continue to be connected back to sport and yet you've nav- you're navigating all these sort of interesting aspects of your life at the moment. So maybe we can start at the start, if that's all right, um, and just get to know a bit more about you. You know, how did you end up with a cricket bat in hand uh, prior to being the possibly, arguably the most successful cricketer uh, and female cricketer uh, this country's ever seen? It's an interesting story. Um, I would normally start that story uh, as a sort of six, seven, eight-year-old infatuated with an older brother who was five years older and growing up through the World Series cricket sort of era. Mm. So it was, you know, lights and coloured clothing and playing at night, that sort of thing, which as a kid that was really, I suppose, what now T20 cricket is doing for the current generation. Yeah, yeah. So I'd normally start the story there, but my father tells a story um, about we lived in the country in um, a small country town called Spring Ridge, which is um, out near Tamworth, northwest New South Wales. And he was the school principal and my brother, he was came home from school and he was throwing my five-year-old brother, uh, sorry, seven-year-old brother, throwing cricket balls. He had his pads and his bat and whatever, and that was what Dad was doing that afternoon. And I was with them for some reason. I was standing behind the net and he said he'd finished and my brother was taking off all his gear and he felt a tug on his shorts. And that was me saying, it's my turn. It's my turn. <laughs> so he dissuaded me from putting the pads on and he, he, you know, gave me the bat and I held it right down sort of the end of the handle so that it was as short as I could make it. And um, he said he threw the ball and he hit the bat 
And my version is, if you threw the ball, I must have hit it with the bat. <laughs> um, so I think, I think this connection to family and having an older brother, I think that was probably where it started. Mm-hmm. But I went on to play tennis. I was, I was, my mum was a really good tennis player. My sister was a good tennis player. And uh, up until the age of 13, that's what I did. I played tennis and I hit mm-hmm. thousands and thousands and thousands of tennis balls. Um, but it wasn't until I went to school, um, high school, I saw there was a, a girls team at high school. Newcastle High. So that was the first exposure. And then um, there was indoor cricket. Um, there was selection into squads. And before you knew it, I was I was sort of playing sort of in a pathway. Yeah, so. nice. Hand-eye coordination came. Dad throws the first ball. You know, were you a natural or was it, you know, dad being good at throwing? That's an interesting one. And then we've got, might need to thank Kerry Packer in there by the sounds of things. So World Series cricket. How, like, obviously, there's a lot in that in, in itself that you just described. You get to high school, you you, you join a team, um, you get picked in squads, all of that sort of stuff. What was um at you know as you started to realise you were pretty handy, um what what was the the piece in that that motivated you most? I think because I'd played so much tennis, I was tuned into um, this contest between you know, this singular contest between you and the other person at the other end or you as a batter and them as a bowler or you as a tennis player and your and your opposition. So this this connection and competitive nature of it's just me against you and that's primarily what I did in the nets and also on the tennis court. And then the game of cricket itself provided then the opportunity to do that in the context of there's more people here. So they've now got a fielder and I've got a strategy that I need to work out. I'm playing in a team. I've got someone up the other end. So I felt like the sport was this beautiful mix of the individual, I'm against you, but we're now doing it in a team environment where other people are involved. And ultimately that was the thing that I think drew me, you know, from tennis to cricket, mm-hmm. um, yeah, to, to participate in something that was broader than just, you know, two people. Yeah, connected to your friends, connected to the this game and the complexity of the game. It, it's interesting. I'm not a, I'm not a cricketer. I, uh, I still remember uh, at high school I – there's a guy called Dan Christian, if you're listening to this, Dan. I know Dan. Uh, yeah. D- Dan's a, an old friend of mine. We played a lot of footy together and um, he used to, uh, we played uh, in the in the schoolyard and he'd bowl the ball and said, no, I'm not, I don't know if I, I just, sorry, I don't really want to do that. Um, lots of the other guys are great cricketers from school, but um, but yeah, so that was like my experience. And so I stuck to the idea of a, of a team sport because that connected with me. But yeah, I, I like that because there's this interesting kind of chess kind of component to, to cricket, this strategy side that you just talked about, which I'm sure shows up in other aspects of your life. And this is partly why I'm keen to ask about this out front is your, you know, your mindset and your approach to the game and, and your motivations and all of that. So so how did it evolve? I mean, you became a captain. You you had to learn you know, not only to be effective with um, the, the bat in hand and, and the ball in hand, but you also had to learn to to manage the game and manage people in the game. What, what, what did you learn through that phase? I was uh, made captain uh, at a, as a 23-year-old, so relatively young and also, you know, very young inside a, a national team. And I think the reason that I was able to pull that off for long enough to then learn out what, what I was doing, because at the beginning I had no idea what I was, I had, yeah, I had no no sort of past, no great deep past experience. But what I had done is I'd played with some really good leaders, really good captains. Some of them were inside the team that I ended up leading. So I just felt very safe and supported through that um, through that period. They let me do it my way, but I'd been watching how they were 
doing it. Mm. So I think my style ended up being a bit of an amalgamation of um, a national captain that I played under in, in Lynn Larson, who was, you know, a super tactician, yep. um, very uh, clear on what the, the team goal was, a relatively conservative game plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in a club sense, I was playing under a woman called Christina Matthews, who is now CEO of the Western Australian Cricket Association. Mm-hmm. And she had a, a, a lot more sort of um, flair around what, what it was she was doing, but a very determined sort of put your foot on the throat and do not let them up type mm. attitude. <laughs> so I think I think I was just lucky um, and watched a lot of television, listened to a lot of commentators around what was happening in this game. So bit by bit, I started to piece it together and work out how I wanted to do it. Yeah, and no, I said 23 and, and you've, you've had Lynn and Christina in, in your world and you're saying, okay, I want a bit of both of this. So I've got the the planned, more methodical, I've got this, I can play what's in front of us uh, and probably have to play what's in front of us in some scenarios. What's the what's the challenge for that as a twenty three year old trying to create that command back then? You know, what what did you start to build in terms of your capability, confidence back then? Yeah, I st- stuck to a really simple, a really simple plan. Um, the first bit was just do as I do. So I was just role modelling, um, training hard, putting in effort. You know, really caring about how this team went. Um, so there was a lot of um, you know, players I play as well, which was a reasonably aggressive style of of play. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first thing. The second thing that I realised pretty quickly was I was playing with this senior group and I didn't need to be in their way. Mm-hmm. So my job was not to tell them what to do or to be the coach. It was actually to facilitate us mm-hmm. all working together, just get clear on where are we going and how are we going to do this, very supportive of each other. Um, and the third one was just trust your instincts. So... You know, you've been standing on this field for a number of years watching what's happening, always having the thought, I think we should do this now. I think we should do this now. Mm. So I felt, okay, well, step up. Whatever you were thinking then, just go with it because it's come from somewhere. Yeah. Um, so just trust your trust your yeah. instincts. And there's like a reason you've been appointed, right? I, I suppose there's something others saw in you too. What do you think they saw in you? I don't know. And I've never really, I've never really asked. I think I was um, pretty lucky to be in a uh, I was the youngest in the team, but the team was about to transition into something else because we had lost a World Cup in '93. Um, we didn't even make the final, so the organisation or the the sport was looking. Okay, we need to sort of freshen this up. And I just think I was always going to be picked in the team, mm. uh, and I was in the team as one of the younger players earlier than some of my mates that then came the year or two after. So I felt like I was, I suspect, just at the right moment and the right time. Yeah knowing that I was going to play the majority of, of matches. So um, I don't know what else they saw, but. Uh. We'll have to have a conversation with these people. <laughs> um, so it's, so I, I ask these questions because I think for any listener, um, it's very easy to read about who you are. It's very easy to go, oh, yeah, very successful, you know. Um, and we talked before, just before you came here about, you know, sometimes um, people who are highly successful to the the, the audience or to, to, to people in the community can feel untouchable. It feels like it's too hard to become that. And I think part of our the conversation I want to really unpack is this this idea that there are parts about you that um, that are very unique and clearly highly talented. And then there's other parts, and clearly they're important today because you you don't have a bat and ball in hand when you go into you know a leadership discussion or into a into a decision making process when you when you're in a sporting organisation or any of the work you're doing. So I, I am curious to sort of learn more about how what makes you tick a little bit. Um, so 
you know, when you think about back then, I still want to squeeze the the cricket life, uh, if that's all right. Yep. Squeeze it a little bit harder. What's um what were some of the moments that occurred on the field, off the field, all around that that taught you a lesson or two about life, about leadership, about the work you do? I think the first thing is um you know you you have a finite time to have an impact mm. um so a sporting career has a start and an end and you know that it's not like i'm going to be doing this for 50 years so i can just take my time so there's a finite period of time so make the most of that time um and one of the lessons i got very early was that loss in 93 where we didn't make the final went away as favorites and um, to have to sit and watch a final being played at Lords that you had projected yourself playing in. Um, so that really did teach me about um, attend to today and, you know, tomorrow will look after itself. Mm-hmm. But you do need, there's some urgency around what we're doing. So don't sit back and wait. Um, that was a um, something that stuck in my mind for the rest of my mm-hmm. career. Do you feel like you were sitting back and waiting at the time, oh, or what, I I think what was we playing were, out? I think we were as a as a team. Yeah. I think we had um, a very experienced team that had experienced a lot of success, mm. and for whatever reason, um, just it just didn't happen for that group. And I, as a younger player, it was my first you know trip to England, and there was a lot of excitement, and and you know it was really a fascinating time. But to then fail on the field was uh, almost shameful. Mm. And that's just stuck with me for a long time. So whenever I'm in a, you know, in World Cups or big moments, uh, I'm I'm projecting back. Um, remember what that feels like. Yeah. So don't don't get ahead of yourself. Don't assume everything's going to be okay. So that that was a lesson that has stuck has stuck with me. Yeah. Uh, for a long time. And I, I'd imagine a few of the other women who went on that journey with you, right? There's there's that emotional attachment to loss. Yeah. And, and you said you used the word shame. It's yeah. a pretty big word. Like how what what does what did it feel like that shame? What did it? How did you notice it? How did it show up at well, the time? Yeah, I mean, it was just um, it was almost like it wasn't wasn't talk. We came home and it was just like oh we've you know we lost and it was it, like there was felt unastrained. Yeah, there's just yeah there's just like this team doesn't go away and lose like yeah, that. Yeah. And here we are not not even just losing in a final. We didn't even make the final. Yeah. Um. So it was probably not that we didn't win the World Cup. It was that we didn't even make the final that was horrible yeah. um, and interestingly the team um, the, the current team lost in a similar way in, in 2017 in England mm-hmm. and also didn't what they also got to watch a final from the from the sideline it was the making of that team as well so I think yeah. I think sometimes these moments can be used for um, you know the next layer of inspiration yeah or they can be brushed over and and the lessons not learnt so I yeah. think Back in '93, and then again in 2017, the national team learnt that lesson. Learned that lesson, yeah. How did the for you in '93? How did the intention change, right? So how did that show up when you look at your leadership? You look at your work with the coaching staff. You say, right, we—that's not us. What changed? What shifted in terms of the the attention to success? I think this concept of um, teams need to evolve, uh, and when they get stuck in you know, these are the only people that are going to be selected. Like when, when the actual national team drifts away from the structures that provide people into them, um, you can get this perception that we're okay, um, we'll do it our way. You can get self-interest coming in mm. inside teams when that happens. And I think that's another key lesson is that when when you start to get 
too too comfortable, too consistent mm. with who you're putting on the field when the game plan's too much the same all the time. Mm. It can lead to complacency. So yeah. that that was another that that stuck with me both as a captain and then someone working in the sport. This concept of keep keep the sort of that you know the the thing further out than you can reach. It's like you know just dropping the breadcrumbs. Yeah. you know, further out. And we had some wonderful coaches, but this was a period of time where the team was regenerated, the coaching staff was regenerated, and they, they set about rebuilding um, what then became a really successful team for the next 10 years. Yeah, yeah. So if I hear it, there's, there's acknowledge the complacency, there's this sort of continuous sharpening, keep the stretch in it or the, the breadcrumbs yeah. that you described. I often talk to, in the corporate landscape with my clients, this idea of having a healthy tension or healthy stretch um, a, because it motivates, but B, because it, it you know, the opposite of that is complacency. It's, yeah. it's so easy to go back into a comfort zone. Did you find off the field, you notice complacency relative to that or did, you know, was the fun still there regardless? Did you still, did, you know, later on in life as you guys went through and continue to, you know, play internationally, did you still have a good time off the field? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one thing, um, a, a great coach that I came across uh, who coached the national team for about five years is a guy called John Harmer. Mm. And he was really good at uh, ensuring the, the environment was one of, you know, fun and inspiration, but challenging at the mm. same time. So mm. we were often laughing at training. We were training really hard, but there was often something either at the end of the training or in the middle of the training that was, you know, ridiculous, um, a, a task that he'd set us or something to do, which um, was challenging but amusing. And so we would always end up at the end of training laughing or doing something. And so he brought that as well as this concept of like, we are not where we need to be. We just got to keep getting better, keep getting better, yeah. which sounds really simple from a sporting team, but uh, it's easy to fall back into, well, we've won that. So we'll just, we'll just do the same again. Yeah. We'll do the same again. Yeah. Um, and the number of times I hear, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. It's like, well, if it's not broken, rebuild it, yeah. <laughs> like rebuild it, rebuild it. And good sporting teams do that regularly. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, um, I think if it's not broken, you know, don't fix this or it ain't broken, don't fix this. It's such a fallacy. You know, it's, it's the world around you changes. Everyone else is competing against you. Yeah. It gives you that chance to, to see, see it from a different lens. If you can do that. What were some of those activities out of interest? This sound, this ridiculousness sounds interesting. Well, I mean, one of the things we ended up doing was, um, which was became quite a fun thing was like, we had a giant skipping rope that we would take on tour and, you know, the, the whole team had to be in the rope at the same time jumping. And, you know, and if someone's got their legs taken from under them, you know, it was hilarious. And we had, we had to do three skips with the whole team inside the rope before training could finish. That's massive. Yeah. So it's like, you know, there's 15 players, um, and you know, two staff turning this rope, Thing, things like that, or asking us to perform a skill, you know, run across and take a really ridiculous catch, but you've got to do it with your feet off the ground. Mm. Um, mm. so just trying to put in a bit of, a bit of fun into training that um, meant that people were really challenged physically, but then it meant mistakes, which meant laughter, which meant nervousness, which then made more mistakes. And it ended up just getting like, yeah, quite amusing. How good. How good. Are you like, what sort of character were you in the team? Were you like, obviously a captain, you had a leadership responsibility, but did you have a sort of persona you played? Uh, I had probably two, two distinct ones. Um, if you speak to my teammates, some of them would, would argue that I was uh, cranky at times. Oh, cranky uh, Belinda, Yeah, huh? cranky Clarky. Cranky Clarky. Yeah, 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 at, <laughs> at times. Here, so, yeah. here she comes. Uh, I think that was probably more earlier, sort of in the middle 
where I think expectations, I'd got the the thought that um, if I, I needed to really be really clear on what the standards were and if they weren't lived up to, it was my job to tell them as opposed to perhaps there's other ways to go about that. But that was probably that phase. Um, but in rain delays or at training, um, I felt like I was just one of the players. So uh, we would have a lot of fun. I would drive a lot of that. Um, so I would be either very amusing or very cranky and not much in between, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, at least they knew what to expect, yeah. right? And you, yeah. you knew those personas yeah. straight away. You didn't yeah. take you a lot of thinking. So no. you understand yourself pretty well. And I suppose that I might change gears a little bit if that's right because yeah. I – you know, I'd like to actually, I, I, there will be still a cricket orientated question, but I think this might lead us into some discussions about who you are now as a, in your current life. And, and, you know, one of the, one of the moments I noticed as I've got to know is this 200 runs, you know, it's, it's never been done before, you know, you doing it. And, um, that's a, it's a high standard, but it's also a team game and, you know, we don't have to individually score 200 runs. Um, but it's a huge milestone. Um, how did that come about? What did that look like for you in terms of um, you personally and your own development? Yeah, it probably gets talked about um, a bit when I'm speaking with people or being introduced into things. Um, it's not what I see as my, you know, best moment with the bat in hand. It was against a relatively weak team mm. in a World Cup in India and it was a day that I was actually just – it was early on in the tournament, so I was simply trying to bat the whole 50 overs in order to get comfortable for when the tournament got to the serious end. Mm. So my intention was to bat for the whole time, okay. and I was batting really poorly at the beginning of it. And if you look at the scorecard, which someone ended up, you know, photocopying and giving it to me, it's, it's at my dad's place, I think, but, um, you know, there's a lot of ones, one, 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 one. There's not many dots, but there's a lot of ones, ones, mm. ones. And it wasn't until the back end of the innings that I actually started hitting the ball well, um, and my great teammate, Melanie Jones, who's now a broadcaster, commentator, uh, she always takes the opportunity to tell the story. She was batting at the other end when I scored the 200 and she said that she was preparing herself to come and, you know, do the punch, you know, the fist, fist pump and the hug and the whatever. And she said, I just went up to her ready to go and all I said is, we've got more to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I was so intent on what I was trying to do, which was like bat the day, I wasn't actually interested yeah. in in that. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was a it was a ended up being quite a fuss uh, at the end of the game because we realised that no one else had done it before. But yeah, so it's not it's not what I look back on as my best innings, but it was a moment in time that was important for that team and that campaign because we scored four hundred and twelve as a team that day mm. as well, which is also a big score to yeah. be um, doing in a fifty over match. That tells a lot about you. You know, I think the way you describe that says a lot about what motivates you, what drives you, why you why you turn up, why you turn up for the team. Yeah, you know, what do you think it says about you? Uh, I think once I I'm I need I've worked out for myself that I actually need to understand where I'm going. What am I trying to do here? I need a plan. Hmm. If I don't have a plan, I'm useless. And if the plan's too tight, I become too bound by it. So it it says something about that that clarity of what am I actually trying to do. And then um, don't stop until you've finished it, um, which is the – I was clear on what I was trying to do that day and it was, you know, celebrating a 200 was not part of the script for that day. I hadn't reached anything. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third thing is that this was part of a bigger play. So I'm constantly looking at what's the end game here, what what actually is important today. And that game, we were always going to win that game. Mm -hmm. um, 
But what's important is that we use that game effectively to achieve what we really want, which is to win the tournament, yes. which is going to happen in two and a half, three weeks' time. Yes. So it's an interesting segue because, you know, I'd, I'd like to look at life after cricket. And, you know, when you look at those those components of what, you know, kind of makes you up, I, I wonder how that has shown up in your life in Cricket Australia and your life working with, you know, people that you've supported in from a leadership capacity and some of the consulting work you do, your role in sport more broadly. You talked about, you know, this idea of, you know, uh, having purpose, having clarity and why I'm doing something, knowing the plan. And then you've talked about this idea of sort of following through and, and seeing the big picture connected through that. But how does that show up? How has that showed up? What are some examples of where you, you've noticed that in your, your, your career beyond cricket? Uh, it's probably... Um, the main one would be um, I've gone from my career at Cricket Australia was 20 years worth of work and it, it had, again, punctuated by sort of projects that were three to four years in length and then I would move on to the next one and then on to the next one. So um, the key ones are, um, you know, we built a, a national cricket centre in Brisbane and I was project managing that with absolutely no experience in project managing a building. <laughs> um, so that was, that was an interesting emotional roller coaster, but really proud of, you know, what we left as a legacy of a, you know, multi-million dollar building. Um, and the impact of that was that then we had a really clear home base for Australian teams and talented players to be coming and playing. And they had everything, everything we needed in that building was there, whether mm -hmm. it's Biomech, um, you know, sports science, medicine, it was recovery practices, whatever. So I learned a lot, mm -hmm. um, but I got to work with some amazing people that did know what they were doing in that, in that sector. Um, and we delivered something which was still used today. Oh, wow. um, and then the other one is probably changing the way that kids play the sport. So um, I'm really passionate about, you know, kids having an opportunity to play. And when I was turning up and watching my nephews play cricket, I was wondering why the hell they were there and that their mates were there and that the parents were watching because it was the most boring thing that I'd ever watched. <laughs> it was four hours. It was in Brisbane. It was hot as Hades. Um, and these kids were you know, the kids that were having most fun were climbing the trees, waiting, they were waiting to bat. They were either climbing the trees or playing in the nets. So we went about um, changing that so that that game was more engaging, much better skill development. It took us four years to get it rolled out across the country, but um, that's something I'm really proud of. It's, you know, still stuck today. That's what kids will be experiencing when they turn up to cricket um, now. And we found some really interesting ways to make the game tighter from a time perspective, more enjoyable, um, more faster, like what they saw on the telly, like actually looked like the game they watched on telly yeah. um, and much better skill development, which is really what, um, what you know, keeps you motivated to keep playing sport is being able to see that you're getting better at something yeah. and yeah. that regardless of whether you're going to be talented or not, I can do this today and I couldn't do it yesterday. That's really, that's why kids come back. So you've got to make it fun and enjoyable and feel like you're getting better. I love that. It's I'm philosophically, I'm so aligned to that. It's, um, I want to talk about the project management stuff in a minute, but yeah. I, I, this is a personal story. You know, I talked about Dan and throwing the ball mm. so fast. That's probably one of the reasons Yeah, that for cricket for me, but as a, as a kid, I, I lived down the, the road from Raby Oval, which, which was yeah, a bit of a Campbelltown, Campbelltown yep. and, uh, I'd often ride my bike down there. A few of my mates played cricket and I said, I couldn't think of anything more boring. And, and that, you know, I felt to, to a degree as a child that, that, you know, 
yeah, as you grew up, there was a little bit un-Australian to not be a cricket, a kid that played <laughs> cricket. And I did athletics in the summer. Yeah. And I used to like it because we'd go from one event to the next to the next. And you and you talk about it, it's just all it was is tapping into that that experience that the, the a young kid wants to have, that idea of a little bit of variety, being involved, being part of the team, feeling like they've got a role to play. And I can see how that change made sense. Did did what's um what were the biggest learnings when you went through that as a project? You know, when when you started, I can imagine the old, there was some, probably some, and I'm making this up because I'm assuming I know people pretty well, but people would have resisted that right at the start. Yeah. You know, what did you have to do to, to see this as something um, that needed to be solved? Uh, it was a very clear learning early on because I could see the problem and I'm like, okay, so let's just get together and talk about it. And here's the solution. Mm. And that wasn't going to wash because you're pushing against such a uh, embedded historical traditional sport run by people that have been running it for a long time. Mm. So we approached it by, we did some research to understand what other sports have done to combat the problem. We worked out both boys and girls, what physically they could do um, through those sort of development years of sort of eight to 13. Mm. What, what are the, how far can they throw it? How fast can they bowl it? Um, to try and get some evidence around, you know, if we do this plus this plus this, we'll get a game that does that. So we measured, we measured that from a skill perspective. We then came up with a um, a solution that we thought was worthwhile trialing, uh, and we trialed it, uh, and then we started to keep statistics on what happens to the game. So how long is a game going for? How many wides are bowled? How many balls are hit? How many fours? Um, you know, high participation, so everyone gets a go. Um, how do we strip dead time out of the game, which means you just don't bowl from, you don't keep swapping ends at the end of each over. Um, so we had the research, we had the plan, and then we put it in place for aid associations across the country, high levels of support for them to take the plunge to do it. Yes. We surveyed them, we adapted based on their feedback, and at that point we were ready to sort of roll out. And we did that in a really controlled fashion, um, again, so we could provide the support. and and. The, the probably the biggest insight was until people saw it being played, they didn't, they were scared of it. Mm -hmm. So it, no amount of research, no amount of what Belinda thought was the right thing to do, no amount of what the association down the road did, none of that. All that was important was that they actually got to see it with their own eyes and that removed the nervousness. They saw the kids enjoying it. And then at that point they became advocates. Yes. So some of the harshest critics became the biggest advocates, but we needed to get them to see it, which meant we needed to train up staff that they could go out and let them see it with their their kids, their association, their clubs. Yeah. Um, and bit by bit, that's sort of how it worked. And once it gathers momentum, it sort of spins itself off and, and away you go. Well, it's an interesting, you know, for anyone in, in, there's a lot of the listeners to this are in business, right? They're not necessarily sports people. They might've played sport and have probably come quite competitive typically, but, uh, but lots of people listening to this, um, you know, will have what I hear in that an innovation hat on, you know, I've got to design something for people that maybe they need to experience from my business or from our service or whatever it looks like. And, and the, the interesting part that you really tapped into there was that like emergent exposure that people need to have, you know, when did you, was there a time where you noticed that, oh, hang on, we've caught 
motivation and, and interest in some areas, but we've actually missed the point somewhere and we've have, we have to keep iterating. We have to improve this um, to get it to work. Was, or was it like kind of the right fit from day one based on the research? No, we, we, um, we did a few things. Based on the research and the first solution, we uh, got some advice from one of the state CEOs who was really helpful, um, really smart guy called Andrew Jones. Um, and he said, this is, you need to make this as simple as possible. So we wound back sort of like five steps mm -hmm. to three steps. And at one point we had a slightly different thing for girls than boys. And he said, this needs to be one solution for everyone, their kids. So, so we went from having sort of five or six, seven little versions of it and we sort of narrowed it down to say you know step one two three and that's the that's, that's the same for everyone mm -hmm. um and we had we had to step it in um so the, part of the pushback was if if you were a generally a young boy at this stage if you were a young boy at 12 playing on a full length pitch with 11 mates on the field and playing for five hours you thought that you'd graduated to do that. So to ask that kid or that parent to go back and play on a one meter short pitch with nine mates on the field, not 11, that was too, that was, that was a sense of I'm going backwards. Now I would have sense, I would have been arguing, but you're going to be better by doing this because you're going to hit more balls. You're going to actually, your skill development's going to mm. be, but they weren't interested in that. The pure emotional, I feel like I've gone backwards. It's an identity change. Yeah. We couldn't we couldn't fight that. So we thought, okay, we're going to roll it in from the bottom up. So no one's going to feel like they're going backwards. We start with the lowest age group and, and work it up. Um, and the other thing we did was the iteration from that first group of eight um, that ran the pilots. We did change some things based on their feedback for two reasons. One is some of it actually made perfect sense to do it but the second one was we said we were going to take their feedback and iterate so to not do it would have made them feel like Disengaged. they weren't piloting anything mm -hmm. so we deliberately changed some things we we chose the ones that we thought made it better but we we were always going to change something because um we weren't so arrogant to think that we nailed it <laughs> first time um but we knew directionally we were on the right path um, and those people became advocates then to convince other associations. So they started to do the work for us. Yeah, they sell the dream a little bit, but, yeah. um, that's, it's interesting what you said before about it, what the, the advice Andrew provided you when, when you and your team were, were, were leading that solution. The, the interesting part that I, I think I notice a lot when we look at simplicity, because it is quite profound, like simplicity gets that yeah. cut through. It's so much easier to digest. We can yeah. understand it faster. We can adopt it a little bit faster. So that's, there's lots of those benefits. There's also the the risk that, um, and sometimes, yeah, this is a necessary risk. And I, I think important to hear your feedback on this, that people will opt out. You know, you will lose uh, you know, potentially parents that are, are hardcore on this is the way the game should be played and this is what I learned as a child. And did you find that there was, you know, a, a segment of that that just couldn't buy into the change? Yeah, and they, um, I mean, you just get the arguments like Ricky Ponting played on a full pitch and he was blah, blah, and I said, yeah, that we don't, we're not all Ricky Ponting. Mm. Um, so, you know, the case study of one, I was always trying to argue against the case study of one. Let's let's sort of, our, our job here is to provide as many kids as possible with a positive experience. Mm -hmm. If you're good, um, there is, and and you should be playing that level, there is a, there's nothing stopping you from doing that. So you can play senior cricket, you can play in the age group up, 
you can you can so we're not stopping you're being you accelerated yeah mm. we're not stopping you from doing that if you think that's the best thing for you for your child or for the child to think that themselves so there's always the opt there's always the opt up mm-hmm. and i you know i just had such strong belief that if there was opt outs um they're probably going to opt out anyway at some point down the track so it's like don't get concerned with losing one or two on the edge when you can provide a much better experience for the masses um so that's so there was a bit of sort of thinking about well what happens if um generally speaking uh the people picked it up and they realized the change was positive because the kids all of a sudden started having fun yeah yeah it's so amazing it's so amazing it's great to see because you, you could be quite proud of that i'd imagine it's um you know I, I often talk about this with with clients and change journeys and, and see a group as a bell curve right you'll yeah. always have a, a you know resistant very strong resistance on a very far end and then you'll yeah. have this high advocate that just has yeah. you know an absolute belief in with you know, doesn't yeah. even, you haven't even need to experience this they believe it and then you know, how do we move the bell curve together realizing that we're never going to keep everyone happy but i look if i if i think about what you've just shared and, and you um You've talked about a really positive experience. You talked about the project management as well. Young, thrown in the deep end, probably sounds like you know similar to the first stages at cricket. But you know, are, are there times during your time in that in that field um, of working in sport and leading in sport that were far more the opposite, challenging, um, perhaps you know where you didn't get the best result, perhaps where you have regrets. You know, what are some of the learnings from that? Um, what examples have you got? Uh, I think. Probably um, the way the way that Australian sport is structured from a governance model is, you know, local associations feeding into state associations feeding into the national organisation, and um, I think lining all of that up is quite a big piece of work. And every time that I approach something. Uh, working at the national level is always with the intention of lining lining that up because if you can do that, then you get the benefit of the power of people all Probably sort of pulling in the same direction. Yeah. Yep. The reality is um, that that's not always the case. And whilst it may take you years to line up the trust for that to happen, within days it can be eroded. And the the most disappointing part for me in my, my sort of, as I was sort of coming to the end of my time inside cricket was this sense that this sport was about to start to eat itself. And that always comes down to, um, people either feeling undervalued or there's money on the table. and don't feel like they're getting enough of it. Um, or that they've been, feel like they're being told what to do. So combination of those things. And, um, running a project that was actually, you know, meant to align people. We got there to a certain point and we got some things in place and then COVID hit and all of the things that I thought we'd locked away as agreements of how this this thing was going to work, all of a sudden some external pressure comes on people and the the things started to unravel quite quickly. And I found that really difficult to deal with because A, there was so much energy put into it, not just my energy, but whole range of people um and the self-interest started to sort of pop to the surface um and a lot of the work that we'd done had just start to unravel and i was disappointed in that from a human behavioral perspective but also kicking myself that i 
um, hadn't hadn't sort of foreseen that that may ha- not that COVID was going to happen because yeah. I think if I'd done that I would have bought some shares in <laughs> yeah, Moderna yeah, or something, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but I didn't. Um, so, but that I didn't I didn't at any point stop to think, what if, mm-hmm. what if, and that's probably a lesson in there because looking back in history, it was probably highly likely that that was going to happen at some point. And I didn't think about it. Didn't, I thought I'd guarded against, you know, I thought I got everyone in on the right, you know, on the right tracks, but obviously not. And they're still recovering in my view. They're still recovering now and it's sports got a long way to go to line people up again, not, not just cricket, but just sport in general. Sport in general as a result. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, culturally, when when I think when groups move, I notice something consistently, and that is that um, until something's genuinely, truly embedded, um, there's always this slippage uh, yep. risk, and it's far easier to have slippage in the early stages of that. Yep. It's easy to say that, but managing that's hard. I mean, when you when you look at you know sort of reflecting and and perhaps you know beating yourself up a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, if you looked at it moving forward, and I'm sure you work with leaders now, and you're helping them see these things and ask these questions, what what questions or, or tr- trigger points or data points would you look for if you were to do it again? Uh, I think people's um, willingness to commit in an open forum to things, and then um, how slippery they get in terms of signing off on stuff. So as soon as someone starts to back out of oh, well, I don't think we need to do that or that looks like over-bureaucratic or it looks like whatever, that should be a signal to say, actually, I don't really believe in this. Um, I'll be looking at that. Um, when when you're dealing with the leaders and they're telling you one thing and then you work with their staff and they're telling you something slightly different, oh, yeah, we're sort of doing it but we're also doing this and this and this. It's like being able to call that out in a way that actually deals with, puts the problem on the table rather than it forcing it underground. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of the work that I'm doing with leaders now is in the context of sporting teams and just having the courage to set up environments where those problems are brought to the surface and dealt with rather than the leader telling you eye to eye, yep, we're on board, and then speaking to someone that's too, too IC or three to four down the chain and going like, we're not doing that. Yeah. Uh, and sort of thinking, no, no, you are, because I've spoken to your leader. It's like, no, no. So just that, you know, just the, the courage to get to bring the problem to the surface so you can deal with it. Mm. Um, I have this saying in my business and, and with some of my clients, it's that the, the truth is a line, let it out, it kills what it needs to kill. And, you know, yeah. if, if you think about that, you know, yeah. often the, the most fearful part is the, you know, for when people are seeing that lack of congruence is the, the ability just to say it because they're afraid or they're concerned about the thing that happens after I say it. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I wonder, do you see in that, do, is, there, is there a need for more role modelling of that? Do we have enough role modelling from your experience? And, of course, you, you can only perhaps say this in, in a sporting and business context as opposed to, you know, every business having this problem. But what is it about the role modelling of honest conversations and putting that elephant on the on the table, right? What, what is it that you think we need yeah, I think um, knowing your group so that, you know, sometimes there's a, a, a group discussion to try and um, demonstrate that it's okay to have different points of view and sometimes that conversation needs to be in either smaller groups or one-on-one in a caring way that actually puts a nice safety net under safe. someone that they can um, know that they're not going to be hung and quartered 
over having an alternative opinion. So I think particularly in sport te- sporting teams, there's a desire to line everyone up very quickly and march them in the same direction and have them all sign off on something without any real debate because that is a sign of alignment. And I would argue that if you're not debating something, it's probably not aligned at all. And so having young leaders that can, you know, at, yeah, these people are young, they're 20, 20, 21, 22, and they've got experienced staff around them and often playing groups that are disparate. How do I manage that? How do I um, celebrate difference? How do I pull that information out of people in a way that's comfortable and easy and then repeatable? So then as the leader, I'm going to have to role model some of that somehow. So finding those moments where they can admit they've either made a mistake or put another view in or ask the coach for, you know, just being able to ask different questions to bring different views out. Yeah. It's, it's not easy to do, is it? No, it's, and it's hard. And if you're young and you haven't seen it done anywhere before, then it's super hard. Mm. Uh, or if you've got a coach that wants the players to just shut up and do what they say, um, that's also doubly hard. Um, they, those stories generally don't end in a great way. If people don't feel like they're part of, um, what this team stands for, Mm. how it's going to play, how we're going to behave. Um, but there's a lot of quite, quite team meetings, you know, where there's just one or two people that speak and those people say, I wish everyone would speak. I'm like, well, what have you done? What have you done differently other than tell them what to do to encourage them to speak in that setting? Um, it's hard. And I don't think I, I think I learned a little bit of that through my cricket playing, but I learned a lot of it, um, in a work environment where all of a sudden the workforce you're dealing with is, um, you know, it's 70 people or 60 people or whatever it is, but they're from multiple generations. They're from multiple places around the world. They're not all clear on the goal, possibly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a lot harder, but you've got to do something to encourage people to speak. Yeah. There's the, the value set that I, is that, that often shows up in different companies, but there's the interesting one that if you do, you know, you could easily Google this. Anyone that's um, online can have a look at this is, is what Amazon as known for is that idea of debating and discussing and exploring and challenging before a decision is made. But then once a decision is made, we all agree that we're going to stick together and execute as part of their DNA. Now I've not worked with Amazon, but I I, have have on good word that it's a fairly well lived. Um, It's interesting when you compared before though, you know, we can create that conversation in a sporting team and the goal is super clear. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's pretty simple. It's, it's, yep. we win. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, that's, that's a nice place to be because we can then discuss and debate on fairly common goals. Um, on, in the business environment, it's, it's a little bit more obscure. Typically there's the different perspectives. There's sub, you know, sub team environment needs and, you know, pillars of the business that function differently because they've matured differently. Um, What's your, what's your objective or uh, what's, sorry, what's your observation of goal setting? Yeah. This is alignment around goals. You talked about alignment a few times now. What's, what's the relationship between getting that conversation really well aligned to the actual purpose that we're really here for, not these sort of side stories that seem to whirl in from time to time? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's much harder in a, you know, in a business context to do that because the other thing. Uh, whilst the goal is clearer in a sporting context, it's also there's a moment in time where you will be measured um, and it's not like a performance review where you can fluff your way through and, you know, convince someone you did something that whatever. It's like, no, 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 your result will be on a scorecard on this day 
Um, and so will your teammate and your teammate and your teammate. So that's it's sort of like a really clear moment in time. And then you just finish that one, you go into the next one, you go into the next one. So there's this just a nice rhythm of like, when is exam day? <laughs> you know, it's, it's just far gets, less subjective, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Whereas yeah. in business, I felt when I was working inside um, the cricket organisations, you did have some moments in, in time where those big things were measured and clear whether or not you achieve something or not. But there's a lot of the process stuff that gets left behind that doesn't get managed or monitored. Um, and so you don't have any, don't have many feelers along the way to say, are we heading in the right direction? Have we, you know, I would constantly be asking um, my team at work, um, are we winning today? Like today, right now, are we winning? And blank, blank looks because it's like, well, of course, because we don't count, we don't understand who's playing the game because of the way the systems are set up until the end of the season. That's really hard then to, did that thing I did work or not work? And so um, I'm big on sort of setting up learning environments so that you're constantly finding stuff and then, okay, should we act or should we not act? Or how, how is this impacting us? Um, what's it, what information is possible? Um, what's an example? Um, are we talking to the people that sell cricket equipment about whether they're having a bonzi year or whether no one's buying cricket bats? No. Well, why not? Because they they are getting a data point that would be really getting helpful. a far earlier data point than yeah, us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is at or a time a before we had sort of yeah. online registration of, of, of kids, which um, has really started to take hold now. And, and yeah. again, a bit of pushback on that system coming in. But um, it, knowing, knowing your goals, um, not only the end point, but what are the things I need to do in order to get there uh, in a working sense was a lot harder to do than in a cricket sense or an on-field perspective. So if you think about the ingredients of that you noticed in in the team context off the field, um, yep. you know, the, and I say this a lot, it's like we, we want a learning culture, we want this discussion, we want to create this safety. And, and you know, yep. it sounded like you, you were trying to do that, particularly in the circle of control you yep. had. And then you've got this underpinning kind of governance or data or structure that needs to exist in order to have something that provides some direction for everyone right um if you think about the ingredients was it more of the the lacking of infrastructure in your case what what, what was uh, from what a, was from missing? a work perspective yeah for the um, work perspective yeah, yeah i think um deeply understanding what works in order to get the outcome we're looking for mm. so there was constant eyes going to the outcome and it either not being clear or not possible to measure it yet mm-hmm. which means that people then take liberties at times to start spinning off other stuff and in the end you get very broad on what are you doing because because i can't can't measure that till later yeah so i'm going to do this other stuff that i think might help but they don't set up they're not setting up the measurement systems to see is this working or not working so there's lots of ideas no shortage of stuff being done but no idea what worked or didn't work and i think one of the key things is being able to answer that question am i am i getting closer to my goal today or not is what i'm doing helping is it making me a better blah blah or blah and if the answer is not clear then humans will go off and dream up more stuff yeah and so you end up with a team doing all sorts of stuff and sport is not short of good ideas yeah yeah Uh, but it's short of process and discipline um to actually understand seek to understand what is it that's driving this outcome it's interesting you say that sports not not you know um, you know short of good ideas and probably not short of passion. You know, I, I think there's some organisations I've seen that are um, very very good at um, you know 
structure and process and you know, probably lack the passion. But there's not a shortage of lots of organizations that have really you know, connected people that are there for a purpose, trying to do great things. You know, when you look at that passion, it is quite unique in sport. You get a lot of people very tapped into um, wanting to do great things. Do you think that's an advantage or a disadvantage? I think it's an advantage if you can harness it. <laughs> so if if you can find the three or four people that think that they're actually thinking about that problem over there and join them together and say, okay, spin something up and test it um, and and come back with. So giving them permission to explore, but doing it in a way that's above board and a conscious decision to say, yep, that we think as a collective that that's a good idea to pursue, go and pursue it. But what would it look like? What would you be coming back with in six months or 12 months or whatever to say that what we did has got a method and some evidence to suggest that works? Mm. Um, and sometimes that's difficult when, if you think about community sports, some of those things that are going to come true are, you know, 10 years down the track. So what are we, what are we doing with indigenous communities as an example? What are we doing with indigenous communities right today? That's actually going to allow, um, the sport to grow and for those people to experience sport in uh, cricket in a really positive way. Yeah. What are the, what are the lead indicators that te- tell us we're going yeah. in the right direction, knowing that we're a long yeah. way from the vision yeah. that we might have? So we would have a, a board that is asking what are the lead indicators that are telling us that what you're doing is working. And the reality is that we didn't have any lead indicators in place because we hadn't done the thinking to say, what would this look like? Mm-hmm. Or the lead indicators are so fluffy that people didn't believe them. Um, so they're, they're the challenges of, um, you know, creative people who are wanting to do great things. Um, also, you don't need to bind their hands so they can't be creative, but you do need to, I think, encourage them to be working together and, and thinking about what are you bringing back to me as the case for change here? Um, and if they've got that in their minds, they go off and be as creative as they like, but it's got to be useful Otherwise, what you end up doing is trying to be all things to all people and you end up with no no coherent sort of strategy. And then when the big number falls over at the top, did we have more people playing cricket this year or not? And if the answer is no, it's like, oh, why not? Well, it's because we did all we were busy doing all this other stuff. So there's a there's a balance between innovation and also then delivery and making sure that the innovation's got some output that's going to be useful. You're preaching to the converter with me. I <laughs> I mean, I I love what you're talking about. I think some, you know, who haven't experienced that may find that, um, you know, rigor and structure can be limiting and feel really can, abrasive, but it's, um, if it's done well, if it's introduced well, and, and it's, and we're, we're able to help people see the value of that and be okay with those measures, regardless of whether we're off track or on track, but just yeah. see that as a data point at a point of time so that we can, we can almost be like a GPS to bring us back on track. It's very powerful when it's done well. Yeah. And they, they you don't need to give them the measures. That's part of the creative work here is all I'm asking is that you think about what this would look like if it was working. Mm as part of your solution or your creativity. Like, so I'd, I'm not going to tell you what the outcome needs to be, but you need to think about that before you start. Otherwise it, we're just going to end up with lots of stuff going on. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's a, it might change gears slightly, but I yeah. think it's a great build because you talked about this idea of strategy and, and connecting it through and, and landing the right initiatives. And, and I think a nice case for that is looking at women in sport and looking at women's cricket and, and just the future of any game. Um, but it, you know, I'm particularly curious about, um, the female sporting, 
competitions that exist and your observations on it because you're so close to it, you understand it, you're a participant in it, you've you've seen you know grassroots communities grow. Um, arguably, it's got a long way to go. I mean, there's these discussions around um, you know the return that players get paid versus the revenue generated, the the revenue dollars coming out of the game. It's a long way from the male sporting position, but yeah, that 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 market is just so immersed, so early, and it's a, you know it's it's development. Um, when you look at the the kind of longevity of sport, so I wonder if you, you know, I'd be really curious on your perspectives around strategically where do you see it going, um, and what are the challenges that need to be navigated in order to to build um, women's sport to the potential it might be able to achieve. Yeah, um, I think uh, sports that are um, you know, Olympic sports or who have, you know, funding coming from a, a government body uh, who are relatively poor to the compared to the professional sports, they tend to do gender equity a bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, the sports that perhaps struggle more with it, and this is, gen- this, I'm being very generalised mm-hmm. here, so um, you won't find it hard to put holes in my argument, I don't think. But um, the ones that are sort of steeped in, dollars will be generally geared towards males and that's where that's where I think the big change and progress is being made so um i think being really clear on um if if our aim is to have uh, a world where regardless of gender if you're putting an, an output out there and you're therefore getting paid for um what you're doing you, you need to be mindful of what what am I I'm measuring that against revenue in or am I measuring it against you know joy and output etc so women's sport is constantly getting measured against dollars in dollars out mm-hmm. and I think that's just an unfair uh, if you think about the history and the time it's taken for men's sport to be that r- lucrative it's taken it's hundreds of years so that is not the only it's it is a lens but it's not the only lens the other the other lens is about um you know general health and well-being it's about engaging society and um you know being for girls and boys both to be able to experience sport which should be a basic human right so i think it's easy to fall back to they're not generating money um and it's harder to fall back on okay well what what do we want them to be generating so what should we aim these things at so from a cricket perspective um, eyeballs watching television that cricket was being played, bums on seats, um, sponsor interest, um, fan interest, um, player, like the quality of the the actual product. They're the types of things that you need to be looking at from a top end. But how do you then connect that through to what's happening at the grassroots and what is the pathway for me to get from A to B? And that needs to be super clear. Um, and they're being built, backfilled, built between what you see on your television and what happens on the local park yes. and every sport is in varying degrees of building but most of them are building the plane as it's being flown so you need to invest in that because that product at the top is not going to get any it's not going to evolve if you're not pushing people through so sports have to invest in that and that's not an investment that the public is interested in we don't put that on the page we don't put that on the front page of the paper we don't say oh cricket spends x millions of dollars on its male pathway and only percentage of x on the female pathway we don't we just talk about who's what players are getting paid what so we stop the conversation too early yes 
And we don't think about this in a, a way that's sort of like, okay, what are we going to build for the future? Mm. So um, the under-19 uh, international competition that the International Cricket Council run, they won a World Cup for boys every two years. They've done it for 40 years. This year, um, sorry, at the back end of 2022, we ran the first under-19 Girls World Cup. I've been banging on about that for about 15 years to yeah. say we need to do this. We need. Well, we don't have the money. We don't have this. We don't have that. The sponsors aren't interested. The broadcast's not interested. Well, they ran it. They had 16 teams in it, and Rwanda won matches. Like it just blows my mind. So that's where that's where the investment and the time and the energy should be spent. More more time should be spent than worrying about whether the top athletes getting what percentage of what wage. Yes, that's important. But it's not it's not the start and end of the discussion. Yeah, the, totally. The actually the this thing is like a machine that needs to go from step one to two to three and getting that lined up and clear what you're trying to do and make it pertinent for that gender, for that moment in time, not just copying what the men have always done. That is also difficult for people to get their heads around. Yeah, I, I think it's a um it's a very important discussion. It's interesting, right? When you look at businesses that have had very um, high degrees of success has been high degrees of vision. And when you look, even if you look at some of the startup um, community and, and some of these unicorn stories, there's significant investment in bringing these in, these to life. And often if you look at their, their P&L or, the, or their position after a period of time, they're running at a loss, yeah. right? And um, the question is, is there a belief that there's a return, right? So what, and, and is this worth doing and for what reasons? Right. And, and like you said, it's like align on those critical questions, align on what that vision is, and then recognize the investment that it's going to take um, to support that. Because um, then what happens, you know, if we can have that narrative more broadly, we can see that go through the entire ecosystem. The, the challenge will always be at the point in time, I would imagine this is one of the challenges at least, is that at any point in time, there's an audience talking about what they noticed in the media, the media are there to tell, to, to click for eyeballs. And we, our, our narrative in terms of our intentions versus how the consumer experience it is, is skewed, right? How do you see that evolving? Well, I think, um, getting clear on what are the, what are the things you can do to create a proof point around your narrative? So, uh, the T20 world cup final in Australia, um, international women's day, 2020, 86,000 people in the MCG to watch the Australian women play India. So that was a significant investment of the organisation to make that happen. Um, that could, that money could have been spent, uh, could have given it to the players, could have given it to the community, could have given it to what, but, but the decision was that's an investment we should make and we should make it because we need to change the way this is perceived. Mm -hmm. And since that moment in time, I believe there's been a number of other significant sort of changes or shifts, one being the Women's Premier League in India. I think that tournament was the first time that we'd put anywhere near that number of people in a stadium to watch a women's match. And it totally changed the view of sponsors, of broadcasters, of the public. And so it was a um, it, changing the narrative, deliberately doing things that you're going to change the narrative um, yes. is, is critical to help people see what that future might be like. So I didn't say we're going to invest like this for every single women's match that's now being hosted in Australia, wasn't that? No. It was like key moment. Our team might not even make the final, but we are going to try and break a world record for the number of people coming in to watch a women's match, a women's sporting event in the world. 
and we missed by 4,000 people to a FIFA World Cup final. Um, but that didn't matter. What mattered was the bar was set, everyone was going for it. Yes. And it changed. It, it significantly changed the way the sport's viewed. It's interesting. It, it ties into the first story that we talked yeah. about, right? It's yeah. that idea of migrating uh, the community and the, that sort of a pack you know, together yeah. to, to taste, to experience it, to find the best way to to move the dial because not everyone's ready. No one was, I don't haven't had that experience or yeah. might might be the first few, few experiences that I'm not quite clear about. And and that's just um, comes with change, right? Yeah. It's just getting comfortable with that. And it's interesting. I, I said before I. Uh, before this video, I was talking about a, a previous environment I worked in. I was so fast paced and I was always caught up in this working environment myself where I felt like I never stopped, right? And and I, you know, even to the degree that someone in this in this organization I worked for just happened to everywhere they went, they walked really fast. Yeah. And I felt that, you know, I got caught up in that culture. And yeah. and perhaps that's part of the interesting dynamic here is how do we help people get caught up in that culture? In a health, healthy way, in a great way that embraces you know women's sport and allows it to flourish, rather than to be squished into you know the constraint of dollars and cents and the conversion that it gets today, yeah. is that is that a big part of it? The cultural shift. I think so. And I, if you think about you know sporting organisations have been evolving, so there's now a lot more diversity sitting on sporting boards. Um, there's more diversity sitting on management teams. Um, the more traditional the part of the business the less diversity. So high performance, end of the sport, less diversity, community end, in some cases, no diversity. In others, you know, clubs are blossoming with with lots of diversity. So um, sport needs to stay relevant to the community in which it's operating in. So um, for games like cricket and football and everything, swimming, I mean, you just need you somehow need to be attracting lots of different sorts of people yeah. in your doors. Um, but sport traditionally hasn't had to do that. So why should we do it? Or oh, we're being woke or blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, we're not going to survive. Mm. Mm. It doesn't take long for a generation to lose the passion for a sport. Yeah. yeah. So sport understands that, but there's a lot of people involved in delivering sport and a lot of them aren't paid. You know, the workforce the majority of the workforce is volunteers. So you have no, you can try and influence and you can support, but at the end of the day, they're self-determining mm. clubs and associations. And those volunteers have choice. You know, yeah. we're in a, an environment where there's so much more information and so much more empowerment provided to people generally. And, and I don't have to participate. Yeah. And I don't feel like I have to do that because everyone else in our community does and that's the way I fit in. I can fit in in so many different ways now there's so many niche little communities and sporting you know uh, environments you know that are that are available to people uh, or even just not even the sporting but the the entertainment environment and the the experiential environment they're, they're yeah. just it's just evolving so greatly so it's a good question to challenge isn't it yeah and i mean we don't really want to go down the path of the us where everyone watches sport but no one plays sport mm -hmm. um i think we've got a nice mix here people are fans and they watch sport Gee, there's a lot of people that play sport in the community, which is run by volunteers, and that we should do our utmost to, you know, to hold that, so that we're not a, a nation of watchers, uh, we're a nation of participators, and that's that's I think where sports trying to get itself to that it's relevant, and you can pick and choose how you participate, but actually what we want people to do is to participate because when you participate, you get rusted on and you become a fan for life, and so there is an economical return but 
there's a health benefit too, um, which is much more you know, beneficial than sitting on the couch watching pop, watching a sport with popcorn in your you know in your hands. That's not that's not what we want a nation to become. Yeah, it's a great vision for our nation to avoid that, right? Yeah. I, um, I I completely see that as a child. I you know, sport and activity was just part of what we were expected to be, and and you know, our parents. And a lot of the parents I grew up with were, you know, you'd, you'd see sporting you know, as an idol, not as a, not as something to criticize and challenge. So it's really interesting. And even, even what you described, I, I like, I liken that to what I experienced as a child is the Dolomite account. Yeah. You know, I got in early, CBA got me. Yeah. Um, but I had great this account, sponsors of cricket, great too, sponsors of cricket too. So, and yeah. great sponsors of the women's team since 1998, would you believe? Yeah, and I didn't do that deliberately either. Yeah, but, but yes, there you, there go. you go. I got a plug. I'll be ringing them. Yeah, yeah. you'll have to let yeah. them know. So, but I, I think that was like, you know, partly it was before its time, but it, it's so, you know, so interesting how important it is for people to feel like they're part of something they can grow into. Yeah. You know, and, and as a child, like just, Putting my two dollars into yeah. the bank and saving the money, and it was a, a it was an interesting way to capture attention. So, what you're saying there is participation breeds the entertain uh, the, the the relationship with the entertainment later on in life. Yeah, and if you think about your upbringing and people in my generation, our parents played sport. Mm. My my parents played sport, and I saw them playing sport, and that was part of life. Life is so busy now. Um, I wonder how many parents actually play sport. A lot would do exercise, go to the gym, whatever. Mm-hmm. But what are we role modelling back to our kids about the benefits of team sport and connecting, you know, through physical activity? Um, I think that society has changed, has moved, and that has an impact then on the kids. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. I uh, I won't get down that that hole with my family, but uh, <laughs> we 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 are still active in team sport. My wife likes the gym. I like team sport. But anyway, that's how I'm built. I'm built. Um, f- probably just a a, a final uh, sort of shift. Well, not a final shift. It might not be, but just a, a shift in the conversation. Um, you've been, you know, you've really clearly articulated that, and, and yeah, that sort of strategic view. Um, but you've, there's also been other, you know, I guess more uh, critical moments you've talked about, um, you know, the, the scenario there where there was that breakdown in alignment. You also would have been around the, the sandpaper gate issue. Mm. Um, what did you learn from that? Um, so for was, those who haven't heard, you might need to tell yeah, them. Yeah. So I was, um, I was, uh, put in charge of the, um, the, both the men's and women's teams after Sandpaper Gate um, to try and lead that department for what was going to be three months. It ended up being a bit longer than that and um, quite a tricky tricky time because the guys were coming back into the team um, halfway through sort of that my tenure. Uh, so we had to think quite deeply about how do we do this um, because it's really important that they've, given the chance to come back and contribute again as team members, um, having been, you know, publicly shamed um, and also, um, but they'd served their time. So, you know, we had this, some people saying they should never be allowed to play again and we had others saying like, why were they suspended in the first place? So you sort of had this, everyone had a view, Mm -hmm. but our first um, requirement was to say we need, this needs to be done in the context of those individuals and the rest of the team and the team and the team itself. So um, very lucky to work with um, Justin Langer and the team manager, a guy called Gav Dovey, um, and some uh, we got some help from outside that people that do this sort of work. Um, 
And so it was tricky, but I I think we managed to get our way through it to the point where, um, you know, the conversations that needed to be had were had and, um, you know, both Steve and David are back in the team and Cameron scoring runs and playing well for Western Australia. So I look back on it. At the time I didn't enjoy it, a lot of it, because it was quite um, it's quite busy. There's a lot of stuff going <laughs> I can on. Imagine. Um but I think again, keeping the long term view in mind, what what are we actually trying to do here? We're actually trying to heal um and provide a nice smooth path for these guys to come back in and for everyone to be comfortable with how that happens. Yeah. You um you had a vision clearly again, going back to some of the topics you've talked about before. What um where did that empathy for healing come from? Why was that important? Uh, I think just, I mean, the way I, I, where did it come from? I think I, I've learnt over time that um, there's not just one way to do something and your view is not always the best way to do something. So I think when I started um, my leadership career, I probably didn't think that. I probably thought the opposite. Just I've worked this out. Just here, here's my answer. Let's go. Um, and over time I've worked out that that's not how it's best. That's not how I probably operate at my best and it's also probably not best for others. So I think it's just um, probably coming from, um, you know, I played a sport as a kid and then as an adult as one of the outsiders so I was a female playing sport, which was a male game. And so you're constantly trying to prove yourself. I can play. Give me a chance. You know, I played in boys' teams. I played in, you know, sort of with with males at different points in time as well. Like just, you know, you're constantly searching for, um, you know, the, the 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 tick that says, "Yep, you're a you're it's a cricketer. Yeah. yeah, you're a cricketer. That's you. I can see that you know what you're doing." So. Coming from that side of the sport, I think just opens up your eyes a little bit to say, well, these three guys are now on the outside and I need to bring them in. <clears throat> so how do you do that in a way that's, you know, going to be sustainable? Yeah. Yeah, that sees they've still got value to offer. They've, got a, they've made a mistake. They've learned from that mistake. There's a whole lot of people that they influence and how do they show that recovery as a healthy thing? Yeah. And how do we support that? Yeah. And if you put yourself in their shoes, I mean, having, regardless of what they did, which, um, you know, I don't, I don't agree with, um, you know, pushing the boundaries to the point where you're cheating. So I don't, I don't agree with that behavior, but if you put themselves in the shoes, it was a pretty public, um, you know, mistake. <laughs> um, and they, they paid a heavy price for that. So I, I don't know. I just saw three guys, um, that love cricket that had made a mistake and they wanted to get back to playing cricket. So yeah. it's like, okay, we need to help. We need to help do that. Yeah. I often say to people when they're a bit harsh on, you know, people have made a mistake, um, particularly when they go to the end of the spectrum where it's like, well, rub them out, rub mm. them out. Right. You know, you know, I often say, just, just stand in the, their shoes for a moment. Imagine I rubbed you, rubbed you out from the thing that made you who you are for the yeah. rest of your life. Or you, I did something so dramatic that it, it, it altered um, your ability to be who you need to be, right? And, and no one would want that for themselves. So it's interesting that mm. um, that sits out there because you very rarely would hear someone be okay with that happening to themselves after a mistake or after, you know, a, a, you know, a regrettable decision in their yep. life. Um, yeah. But we grow, don't we? We do, and you should have a chance to chance to grow. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, it was just 
I, I take my hats off to the rest of the team and to the three guys. I think, I think they did a good job. Um, and yeah, they're back all playing now and seems like a lifetime ago. Yeah, it does, yeah, doesn't it? It's very it? stressful, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to bring it up. It's like a war wound. We shouldn't be, shouldn't be talking about it. But um, no, thank you very much, Belinda. It's been a, a really fascinating conversation. I think there's so many pearls of wisdom for others in there. There's also stories that I think others will resonate with and have parallels within their own world, right? It's it's so nice when you can just share a story and sort of find, I, just, I can see something in that, you know. Yeah. So I, I thank you for that gift of giving that to, to other people. You know, in, in sort of signing off, are there any um, any thoughts you have in terms of, you know, the future for Belinda, um, you know, the, the things that you really want to hold on to that are important to you as you navigate your future? Uh, I think um, oh, I think everyone's, you know, you're constantly questioning what, you know, what's next, what am I you know, where, where are your passions? Where are you, where, what are you trying to actually do? And each time you go through one of those transitions, it brings that, you know, shines a light right on that. So, uh, I, I just hope that I can, I feel very fortunate to have been able to have great support around me when I was going through my sporting career. And I think my sporting career set me up for life, um, off the sporting field. And so I would like to be able to help um, you know, female leaders in particular, see if they can make the most of the opportunities they get in sport so they can, you know, continue the work to keep changing this societal perception of who sport's for. Um, they can keep doing that in a really positive way. So um, whatever I, wherever I go, I keep coming back to those, um, to those things around, you know, helping people um, use, the, use the opportunities you've got, learn through the heat of the experience, which I think is where I've generally learnt the most. Um, but take time to reflect and communicate with other people and work together effectively so that you can change um, change things for the next gen. Belinda, what a nice way to finish off. Well, thank you very much. Thank been you. A, been an absolute pleasure and uh, we hope to see some big things for you in the future. Great. Thanks, Brad. Thank you.